Chapter 2, A Different Story. I thought I'd give this chapter a frustrating sounding title, just to make you think that I wasn't going to tell you what happens next. I'm like that sometimes, I do apologise. Sometimes we have to make jokes, don't we? Anyway, where was I at the end of my last storytelling? Oh yes, I remember. We were in the strange room with a man whose voice I recognised, but whose face I did not. Did you guess who it was yet? I'll give you a moment to have a think. Before telling you what happened in the room, though, I think it's only right that I explain in a bit more detail the events leading up to our situation. For this, I'm afraid I do need to go back a little bit. Please bear with me as it is relevant and isn't one of my usual tangents. It had been a few months since Grimblesnack, and we were still just about living off the additional profits we usually got at that time of year, as I mentioned previously. The tailor we'd been working with was a very friendly gnome by the name of Samson. He regularly gave us work, when he had particularly big orders to fill. Not as regularly as we would like. He couldn't keep us on full-time, or on a freelance basis. Sadly, we occasionally missed his calls for work when he couldn't find us due to our housing problem. Weeks would go by where we had to slum it from street to bench, bench to bed, and bed to street again. We had made friends too, of course. Samson would help us out when he could. Not only with work, but with a roof too. Like I said... Kind Nomi was, and his wife made the best stew I've ever tasted. Then there was Ken. (laughs) Ken the Knife, as he was known by those in the business. He was the one we went to when we had no other choice. He knew this, but he didn't mind. You see, the thing about Ken was, his nickname, The Knife, was more ironic than it was threatening. He was actually very kind to us. Took us under his wing in a certain way us how to survive, live, and even thrive on the street. We had to get our hands dirty again, though. Luckily for us, he had the same underlying ground rule that we had. No murders. So we never had a clash of interests. We delivered things for him, usually. Packages which he didn't want intercepting, for example. Or messages delivered at peculiar times to... Hmm, peculiar people. <laughs> Once... We even took a message to the Fae, if you can believe it. You see, Ken's rivals, and he had plenty of those, didn't know we were ever involved with his troop. So they never stopped or suspected us. Probably because we didn't work for him regularly. They only saw us as two tailor boys trying to make their way. Not rogues in training. Because rogues in training is what we were. Ken had taught us how to blend in with a crowd, pick a lock, go unseen in the shadows, learn the guard rotors, bribe an official without getting caught, and even how to defend ourselves if things went sideways. That was one of the more tiring and arduous practices he liked to put us through, but it was for our own good. We learnt the key strikes, falling swing, thrust, rising attack, but more importantly we learnt to recognise when an enemy we might use these and which defensive stroke would serve us best. Both of us had developed our own idiosyncratic styles, of course. I'm told all sort of fighters do. We both favoured more defensive moves, as neither of us ever really interested in killing anyone, as I said before. 
Oliver had learned to use his defence as a way to disarm his opponent. He even managed to disarm Ken once, though Ken said it was luck. Whereas I found it more, well, rather more fun way, to use a defensive slice to rob a potential attacker of their purse, wallet, or even their belt. It's quite hard to fight when your trousers are around your ankles. Anyway, you'll meet Ken again later in this story. And no, before you ask, he wasn't the man in the room with us. Who else was there? I'm getting sidetracked. Oh yes, the one I need to get to tell you this little extra story. I did warn you not to go off on tangents, and if you know me at all, you'll know I do that a lot. Doris. <laughs> Doris. The owner of the magnificent White Stag, the best public house on the docks. Quite why it was called the White Stag when it was a house on the docks. You expected it to be called the Anchor or the Ship. White stags, the kind of name you expect to see in the middle of the countryside. And the strange thing about it, and I never got an answer from Doris or from anyone else, it was called the White Stag, but the sign wasn't of a white stag. It was of a stag's skull, which is a bit morbid. Anyway, like I said, best public house on the docks. She knew how to cheer up the most downtrodden of hosts, had a drink for every occasion, and could sing like a nightingale. Oliver and I had developed quite a taste for the sweet ale that Doris called Taylor's Own. She mentioned to us every time we were in how it seemed to be particularly popular among the tailors and fabric merchants of Macburg. She knew we couldn't always pay our way to a room, but we would perform favours for her in return for a roof and a meal. Nothing underhanded, you must understand. Oh no, not Doris. No, no, she was straight and true with her moral compass. She didn't mind the more disreputable members of the Macburg population, her pub of course, as long as you paid, kept your fight outside, didn't perform any business under her roof, you were okay. Everyone knew it. Everyone. And they knew what would happen if they broke the rules. <laughs> in spite of her wonderful singing voice and welcoming manner, Doris could handle herself in a fight. Anyway, we repaired her clothes, bed sheets, curtains, did the object cleaning and delivery work, and she gave us a bed and a hot meal in return. We were happy to oblige. In all honesty, I think Oliver had a bit of a thing for Doris, but he would never admit it. He always went a bit shy in her presence, and I think she was the only person I ever saw that Oliver couldn't talk the talk with. She was very striking, to be fair, to him. Tall, dark hair, stunning features and fantastic sense of humour. I like to joke with him that he never had a chance, but I'm not sure that was even true. She seemed to have a bit of a soft spot for him too, so you never know. <laughs> Anyway, back to my story. Wow, I really haven't stayed on track this time, have I? <laughs> Never mind, eh? So, it was one evening in the White Stag. We had a couple of seats by the fire with our friend Jimmy. I know I haven't mentioned him yet. Don't worry, he'll appear again in due course. We were playing our favourite games. Liar Dice, Fish and Catch Me Bluffing. Catch Me Bluffing was my personal favourite because it involved two decks of unique cards and not just one like other games. Had simple rules, but so much depth to it. Plus, I liked fooling Oliver and Jimmy into thinking I was losing before delivering a truly devastating return bluff. I won't go into details of the game now, as they aren't really the point of the story. That's for another time, and another place. Maybe you could join us at the White Stag or the farm, and I'd gladly show you, and then beat you. Anyway, we were just finishing a game of Lie Dice when we were approached by a rather grumpy-looking gnome who seemed to be taking exception to our position by the fire, 
He had a huge black beard which stretched all the way down to his toes and looked like it had been meticulously plaited down the middle. He wore no shoes, as was custom amongst gnomes, plain brown trousers and a plain white shirt. His nose and ears were long, which suggested he was older, but he was without obvious wrinkles. I believe he'd been drinking... Well, actually, I know he had, because I could smell his breath before he even got close to us. He sat firmly down on a stool, with his back to the fire facing the three of us, and leant on a massive double-headed axe on the floor. Then he gave each of us a stern look, which clearly said that he would prefer it if we all moved, and quickly. Oliver, Jimmy and I exchanged looks. We knew that we could take him if we really wanted to, but we also knew that Doris wouldn't appreciate us starting a fight in her tavern, and no matter how soft she was on Oliver, rules were rules. I briefly considered trying to talk the gnome round to joining us for a game, but his bloodshot eyes and stinking breath told me otherwise. We were just leaving anyway, I exclaimed loudly and confidently as I could. Doris looked over, gave us a nod, and gave the gnome a look so dirty I swear he actually flinched a little. We said our goodbyes to Jimmy, who shuffled off home to his bed and made our way down the thin, winding lane to Ken's establishment. It was a good half mile from the White Stag to the hideout, but normally we'd cover it in no time. Sadly, this night, this difficult and dangerous night, was not like other times, and we never made it safely to Ken's. We've been walking for ten minutes or so in and out of streets and alleyways. We liked to take the less trodden routes when we could. We got to know them well working for Ken and Doris, and it was as we turned down a particular street that we came across a sight I never thought we'd see. Laying in a dark alley, half propped against the wall and half slumped down, was a woman. Or more accurately, the body of a woman. We'd both seen bodies before, of course, but there was something different about this, something all the more tragic about the scene we had encountered. She was alone, and somehow I had the feeling she had died alone. Not with her family and loved ones around her, not with a good meal inside her, but alone, cold, and alone. The woman was young, very young I would say, probably only her twentieth year. Her features were pale and drawn as if she had lived a hard, short life. There were no immediately obvious injuries, no pool of blood, no weapon to be seen, and so no one else around. She wore simple clothes, a plain, albeit like faded, blue dress, with a shawl around her shoulders. We approached with extreme caution. We had no weapons with which to defend ourselves should an attacker decide to return to the scene. When we got closer, we could clearly see how she had sadly died. There was an ornate jewel encrusted dagger buried deep into her back. Although while there was no pool of blood, it was still a mystery. Surely if she had been stabbed to death, it would have been much, well, messier. Different possibilities began flooding through my head. 
and there was a strange niggle in the back of my mind that I knew this woman. I recognised something about her. Again, like the man in the room, I didn't recognise her face, or at least I couldn't put a name to it anyhow. I carefully examined the hilt of the dagger for, that was all I could see, to check for any obvious symbols or family crests, but nothing. Oliver and I looked at each other. What should we do? What could we do? He had a pained, frowning expression which told me he was equally upset about what we had found as I was, and was also equally puzzled as to who she was and the circumstances under which she had found herself. Now he knelt down beside her, but rather than examining the dagger, he examined her clothes instead, turning over different parts, seeing if there's any link different. Then he jerked his hand back as if he had been stunned and fell backwards on his backside. His expression had turned to horror. What is it, Oliver? What in Torba's name is it? Oliver didn't reply, but pulled back one of the woman's arms to reveal something on her clothes. Well, more accurately, on her shawl. Something we both recognised, and my look must have turned to horror too. There, on the inside of her shawl, was a small, embroidered rose, and it was indisputable. We both knew where we'd seen that before, and we both knew why we recognised something about the woman. It wasn't her face that we knew, it was her clothes. Clothes that can only have been made in a particular shop, a particular shop which burned down five years ago. A shop we had called home, and our parents had disappeared in. We both stood trembling for a few moments, not quite sure what to make of it or what to do. I spoke first. Go into the high street and see if there are any guards, I said. I'll stay hidden round here in case anyone comes back. Oliver wasn't happy about leaving me, but agreed, and scampered off in the opposite direction. While he was gone, I carefully slipped the shawl from around the woman's shoulders and tucked it inside my coat. I'm not one for stealing from the dead, but something told me I was going to need this. He returned almost immediately, looking worried and panting. We have to leave, now. I didn't need telling twice. We turned and ran. Just as we reached the corner, I knew why. The clang of the guard's alarm sounded behind us and was getting louder. We ran. Ran like we had the night of the fire. Ran like the dogs were after us. And we didn't stop until we cleared the city walls and were deep in the countryside. We couldn't run to Kenton's. He would not appreciate us turning up with guards on our heels. And there was nowhere else to go. We found an old barn and sneaked inside. I slumped down against a hay bale and Oliver leaned against the wall. Do you think they were after us? What did you see, Oliver? Why the heck have we been run out of town? Oliver took a moment to get his breath and look back at me. He looked genuinely scared. It was the gnome, the one in the stag. He had his axe pointed at me and three guards with him. I couldn't hear his voice. But his lips said to the guards, it was us, me and you. He said, we did it. Then I ran back to you. My mind was racing. Why was the gnome blaming us? And what for, for that matter? Was it... Like what? What was going on? It couldn't have been the woman's death. We had a clear and obvious alibi. We'd just been in the stag for... With at least ten others. We had ten other witnesses looking at us. Including Jimmy and Doris. I sighed and put my head in my hands. 
clang. I swung round to see Oliver collapse to the floor. Then the world went black.